All right, welcome everyone to a very special Didactic Mind episode. This is Didactic Mind episode 99. Getting right up there, almost 100 episodes. Hard to believe it's been running for this long. Podcast has been running for almost three years now. So this is Didactic Mind episode 99, the time of renewal. First and foremost, brothers, very happy Easter to you all. Our Remember, my friends, remember, brothers, today we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Glory be to our King. Glory be to God Almighty. He has proven on this day, above all other days, that He is the Lord and Master of the universe, and we are privileged to serve Him as His followers, as His disciples, For Christ himself has conquered the very gates of hell, smashed down the walls of death, and risen again to show us all the glory that awaits us as children of the Father. And that is a wonderful thing indeed to celebrate. And as a result, my congratulations and my good wishes go out to all of you, all of you listening. Very happy Easter, my friends. Uh, assuming you're, you know, it's still Easter in your time zone. If you're in sort of the Western Hemisphere, then it more or less is. Uh, if you're in Asia or beyond, uh, then probably not. Uh, if you're Russian or Greek, or follow, <clears throat> excuse me, the Orthodox practices, obviously for you, this is Palm Sunday. Uh, regardless, uh, I am just happy to be sharing this day of glory and wonders with you. And I thank you, my friends, for taking the time to listen, as always. Be sure, if you have not already done so, to like, comment, share, and especially subscribe to the podcast on Podbean or to the site itself, didacticmind.com. There'll be subscription buttons and various ways to interact with me there. Uh, Also, make sure, if you haven't done so already, join our Telegram channel. Didactic Mind has a Telegram channel. It'll be in the description box. It's a private Telegram channel. You can't find it unless you have the invitation link, and I have provided the invitation link to you. Now, we have, uh, at last count, 119 subscribers, which is pretty damn good, actually. And we have, you know, basically a bunch of readers from the site, but also people who don't necessarily comment regularly on the site itself and just kind of found one of my articles or one of my podcasts and decided, hey, what the heck, I'll sign in and check it out. And uh, I welcome all those who would like to interact with me personally. The channel allows you to view posts that I have sourced from various other places and you can write comments to those. You can uh, comment on those posts themselves. Uh, I may at some point consider starting up an actual like chat group where you can just comment freely. Um, you know, people can actually write comments themselves and people can respond back and forth in a sort of more of a free for all. So we have a bit more of a community. I'm considering it. It's, uh, it's not something that's high on my list of priorities, but if it's something that people actually want, then yeah, what the hell? Why not? Um, it, it might be a useful way just to, Encourage some brotherhood and, and some interaction between very, very different people. I mean, I have all sorts of uh, people on, on the chat, um, mostly men, 
which is not surprising. <laughs> I don't think any women really read my site. If they do, uh, most of them get too outraged to stick around. But that's fine with me. I mean, the point of my site is to reach men and guide them back to the truth. That's really what I'm all about. And what better day to acknowledge that truth than this day, Easter, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day. Because if you look back through the Gospels, all four of them, they all build up to this one pivotal event. And the epistles from St. Paul state it very, very clearly. I mean, it could not be more clear in the letters of Paul that if Christ did not die and rise again, then we are wasting our time. Indeed, if Christ did not die and be resurrected, if the Lord did not rise again from the dead, then everything we believe in is folly. It's a lie. And we are not only fools as Christians, we are the worst and most wretched of men and women because we insist on believing and propagating a lie. And that is the most terrible sin imaginable. It means that we have willfully deceived ourselves and we have willfully deceived those around us. And that over a billion of us, almost two billion of us, believe in things that are simply not true. If Christ did not die and did not come back to life. But he did. And that is the greatest miracle that we could ever hope to receive. Now, I can tell you as somebody who struggled for years with Christianity, I was an atheist from the time I was 13 to... Pretty much the time I was about, oh, I don't know, 25, 26. And then I kind of became more of an agnostic. I just you know, was more accepting of, of the concept of God. And I always struggled with this idea of resurrection. It, it just seemed scientifically and physically impossible. It just didn't seem like something reasonable. I said, there's no way I can believe in this. And I think you know, as as I lost people that I cared about. Uh, my grandmother died in, well, more than 10 years ago. And my grandfather, with whom I was very close, um, died more than seven years ago now. Uh, or almost seven years ago. Not, um, not, not quite that long. And I saw what became of them and how their lives, you know kind of became filled with doubt and pain and worry and just an obsession with the past rather than any kind of hope for the future. And I just thought to myself, is this what it means to get old? Is this what it means to just wait out your time on this earth? It was my grandfather's death that really shook me. Uh, and it, it, it brought me much closer to God, but I still had enormous trouble taking that final step. That, and it is the scariest step because you can bring um, someone who kind of believes in and accepts the existence of God and reads the Gospels and says, okay, you know, Jesus was clearly an amazing man, a great moral teacher, 
an incredible person, amazingly charismatic character. But I can't believe that he rose again from the dead. I just, I, just, I can't do it. I can even maybe kind of sort of believe that he performed miracles because, look, there's just too much evidence that says it happened. It, it's just, there's, the evidence is too strong. I can't discount it. You can go through all of that trouble and all of that difficulty as a neophyte and say to yourself, I believe that Jesus was who he said he was, except I can't believe that he was resurrected from the dead. I can't believe that. And that's the, that's the position I was in back in sort of, well, you know, uh, a little over three years ago, actually. Uh, I bent the knee and accepted Christ as my king in 2019, early 2019, sort of end of January thereabouts. And I, I just, I couldn't, up until that point, I just, I couldn't make that final step. And why was that? Well, because this resurrection thing is so hard to believe. How can a man who's dead rise again? Well, you know, Jesus performs this miracle a couple of times. He, he brings a, a little girl back to life from the dead, and he brings Lazarus back from the dead. And, you know, the, the funny thing is the Bible, if you read the, if you read the, uh, the Gospels, they treat it, you know, not a particularly like, um, profound way. Not, they, they don't get excited about it. That, which is strange to it's it's very strange to say that, but if you read the gospel accounts, particularly um, the the gospel account of the resurrection of Lazarus, you think to yourself, this is really rather understated. It's very matter of factual, particularly if you read. Um, I'm not saying that uh, I have perfect understanding of the scriptures because I don't, but if you read the account given by, I think. It's, um, I think it's Luke, and I could be wrong about this. Uh, but if you read, I mean, okay, if you read uh, basically the, the Gospel of Luke, you'll find it's very analytical. And that's not surprising given the background that Luke had, right? Luke was a doctor, a medical man. Um, he was, of course, uh, very, very much um, kind of, precise and analytical in his descriptions of things. If you read the Gospel of John, on the other hand, and you read through what he has to say about the, the resurrection of Lazarus, uh, even then, it's not particularly sort of uh, detailed, or it, it's not particularly exclamatory, is, is what I should say. And it seems very strange to say that because if you and I saw somebody rise again from the dead, we would wig out. I mean, we would be like every single terrifying horror film involving zombies would be running through our heads and we'd be like, do I need to get a shovel and, and, and bash this guy's brains in or is he going to try to eat me? Right. That's how terrifying that moment would be. It's like literally a, a scene out of Dawn of the Dead, the Zack Snyder remake which is really scary. I mean, the, the opening scenes in that are just terrifying. Um, it would be that kind of, you know, I'm going to crap my pants moment. And you read the, the gospel accounts like, well, yeah, Jesus was, Jesus raised a guy from the dead. Okay. Um, and yet, that is the kind of thing that Jesus was capable of. And you can bring somebody like me or who I was 
right up to the edge and say, okay, I can almost kind of believe that Jesus was able to do this, but I can't believe that Jesus came back from the dead himself. Accepting that requires a leap of faith, a really, really scary, terrifying one. I mean, it's the hardest, most, most genuinely gut-wrenching moment when you come to the edge of that cliff and you think to yourself, if I accept this, I'm stepping over into the abyss and I don't know what's going to catch me. That's what it's like. For those of you who weren't brought up into the faith, or rather, for those of you who were brought up in the faith, you don't know what it's like for people like me who come into it new and have to accept these ideas that just seem so radical and so crazy. But the lesson of Jesus' resurrection is far beyond this notion of challenging skepticism, which is justified, by the way. It is good to be skeptical of the scriptures. It is good to investigate them and unpack them. I believe that the more you delve into the scriptures, the more you will understand what's going on. The more you look at things with a critical eye, the more you challenge the scriptures, the more the scriptures will speak truth to you. And the more you're going to realize that really the Bible is, at its essence, really inerrant. It, you can find seeming contradictions all over the place, but then you actually look into and unpack the contradictions and you realize well, there are no contradictions. It is a consistent document all the way through. It just works. Uh, oh, I just got a message from my friend. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen, my friends. Christ is risen. And if you look through the, the passages of the Bible, again, especially the New Testament, but it applies equally well to the Old, you'll think you'll find lots of contradictions, but you won't. And the more you read through the Bible, the more you will feel this sense of renewal, of hope, of optimism, because every time you read the Word, it speaks to you. And it gives you different lessons each time. I was in church um, back in, oh, I don't know, early February, something like that. I don't, so the thing is, I don't like going to church very much. Here's why. I don't see the need to cloak what the Word says in outrageous mummery. I don't see the point of going to a church and watching men in funny robes uh, doing strange things and following arcane rituals that really add no value whatsoever to my understanding of what the book says. I can read what the book says. I don't need traditions to obfuscate what the book says. The book is so clear. It's so clear and so precise and so clean in terms of what it actually says about Jesus's life and what it prophesies about Jesus's existence in the Old Testament. I don't need the traditions of the Catholic or the Orthodox Church to explain these things away. I can figure it out for myself. I don't need the ramblings of some Protestant pastor or some, you know, the interpretations of some cleric to tell me what the book says. It's right there. I can figure it out for myself. I'm intelligent enough. But from time to time, I do feel the call, the pull to go into church and to sit down and just worship in a beautiful place surrounded by people. But the problem is that around here where I live, 
Um, when you go into a church, they'll tell you, please, can you please wear a mask? I'm like, no, sod off. Um, especially these days because the, the government around here has uh, relaxed all of the restrictions in public places and uh, indoor spaces as well. But the churches still insist on you wearing a mask because they think, incorrectly as it turns out, that it'll protect all the, the old, uh, the, the old fuddy-duddies who walk into church and, you know, and the, the, the crowd is older. I mean, it's a fact. Church attendance among the younger generation in this country and throughout much of the West is flatlining. It's, it's, it's declining, uh, really rapidly. Now, that's not entirely true in some communities. In some communities, there's a vibrant and powerful resurgence of the Christian faith underway. That's great. You know, Christ be praised. That is a wonderful thing. God be praised. It is great to see young men and women going back to church, rediscovering the true word of God and living out the faith as it should be lived, not in a very kind of convenience-oriented way that their parents and grandparents, especially, you know, from the boomers and shrillennial generations, um, have adopted. But really living the faith, the living word of the faith is there for them to, 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 to feast upon and to, and to, to understand in its fullness. These are great things. But I walked into the church back in February and the pastor, big fat jolly man, um, and it just so happened to be a Catholic church because uh, while I don't agree with, actually strongly disagree with the Catholics on, well, pretty much everything when it comes to tradition and uh, most things when it comes to doctrine, but, you know, Catholic churches are nice places to worship. They're beautiful, they're well-maintained, they're, they're just very pretty, and they elevate your soul. So, you know, I walked in and sat down and uh, he said, uh, he talked about his favorite TV show, because I, I think the, the reading for that day was uh, Luke chapter 1 or something like that, uh, or Luke chapter 11, I, I can't remember. But he said, here's the, the reading, and um, he said, let's look back at last week's reading, because this was a Sunday service, and he'd done the, the evening service for the previous Sunday as well, and he said, if you look back at that reading and you compare it with today's reading, you can see the narrative connections between the two. And it reminds me of my favorite TV show, which was something, I forget. And you can see how one chapter leads into the next. Well, here's an idea. Today is the first day of, I think it was Lent, um, or so, something like that. If you, or no, it was the, it was like the first week of, uh, first day of February, I think. And he said, if you start reading uh, Matthew chapter 1 today, and you just read all of Matthew chapter 1 today, and tomorrow you read Matthew chapter 2, and the day after you read Matthew chapter 3, by the end of February, you will have read all 28 chapters of Matthew. Just one chapter a day. And then you start on Mark. And by March 16th or so, you will have read all of Mark. And then you start on Luke. And by, you know, um, whatever it is, uh, I guess 23, 24 days afterwards, you know, probably a lot less than that, um, you will have finished all of Luke. And then you start reading John, yeah, 24 days. And then you start reading John, and within 21 days, you have finished reading John. And you can read the whole of the New Testament one chapter at a time. 
and you will see the narrative connections in between all of it. And you will come away from it feeling renewed. You will come away feeling lighter because every time you read the words in the New Testament, they speak to you directly. And they tell you something different every time. I, I can't count the number of times I've read various parts of the chapters in John, seeking out wisdom, inspiration, hope in the depths of real despair. And I believe me, I have felt true despair multiple times over the last few months for various reasons. And every time I read these words, they jump out from the pages at me. They speak to me personally, and they will speak to you. Because the nature of the word is to give life. It is a living word. Jesus wasn't joking when he said, he will give you living waters to drink. That anyone who drinks the water that he gives will live forever. And that living water is incredibly important in this current day and age, particularly because we are living through a time of unbelievable evil. We see it all around us. We see it in the churches where most churches these days, the Catholic Church is no exception. The Orthodox Church is no exception. Most Protestant mainline churches are no exception. They've all been suborned and conquered by the evil one. They all preach heresy and blasphemy. The Catholic Church insists on uh, diluting and perverting the right of, uh, of, of communion. And the mass that they use in the Catholic Church just doesn't make sense. I mean, it's a sacrificial mass. It's basically, you know, the mass, if you don't meet, if like literally if the Catholic bishop or priest or whatever doesn't fully mean the mass when he, uh, when he, when he performs the ritual towards the end of the, the whole, you know, the, the procedure, it doesn't count. And the Catholics literally believe that they are sacrificing Jesus through the, the communion wafer and the communion wine every single time they perform that mass. They literally believe that they're performing that sacrifice over again thereby completely ignoring the point of Jesus' sacrifice in the first place. One sacrifice once for all. That's it. You don't have to do any more sacrifices. The Orthodox Church is no better. The Orthodox Church has really frightened people into believing some very, very silly things. And you run into this all the time with Slavic women in particular. I was shocked the other day to learn that the majority of Russians, or roughly half of Russians, have never read the Bible. I was like, this blew my mind. I mean, uh, this was from the, um, the, what was it called? The New Russian Bible Project or something, something along those lines. It, on the on the web page of this of this um, this this group, which tries to translate the Bible into Russian, without all the sort of trappings and, and apocrypha and deuterocanonical stuff that the Orthodox 
tradition packs into its version of the Bible. If you, by the way, if you ever opened up an Orthodox Bible, uh, a Russian Orthodox Bible, I've done this. I, I was in a, uh, a religious shop in Moscow uh, about, yeah, about two years ago, actually, uh, a, little, a little under two years ago. So this was sort of uh, just after the Kuf restrictions had kind of lightened up. So this must have been sort of June 2020. Yeah, June 2020. I was um, in southern Moscow and I came across a uh, Bible store, a really nice place. I mean, lovely lady who ran it. And we walked in, and I, I was just, okay, you know, she, the, the person I was with uh, was having a conversation with the proprietor, and I was like, what the heck, let's take a look around. Pulled a, um, a Bible off the shelf, and Biblia and is what it said, and um, I, I just flipped it open, and, you know, because I can read Russian, I can read Cyrillic, uh, it's very straightforward for me. Um, I was able to flip it open and just look. And I could see in Russian what John chapter 1 said, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, in Russian, it's kind of similar. It basically means the same thing. You know? uh, he was with God in the beginning. All things, uh, through him, all things are made, and uh, without him, nothing was made, nothing was made that has not been made. And anyway, I mean, you get what I'm saying, right? But I, I kept flipping through it, and... My favorite psalm is Psalm 23, the psalm of David. Um, you know, the, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and so on and so forth. And though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. All of that. The Orthodox Bible has different um, passages. So Psalm 23 in your English Standard Version or New, New International Version or NASB or KJV or you know what V is different in the Orthodox Bible. It's Psalm 22. I, I don't know why, but they truncate or move around pieces of, of, of some of the scriptures. Um, so they don't have the same exact ordering of the Bible. And they insert a bunch of uh, apocryphal writings as well. Uh, it's similar with the Catholic Bible, which has, I mean, it's not the same thing, but the Catholic Bible, for instance, has Estras and uh, uh, First and Second Maccabees and a couple of others, um, which, you know, Martin Luther chucked out of the Protestant Bibles. So, go figure. The fact that I had actually gone in there and just opened up the Bible and read it, was shocking to most people. Like they, most Russians, despite the depth of their faith, despite the fact that they live in an Orthodox Christian country, despite the fact that there is a huge, very, very powerful, very potent revival of the Orthodox faith in their country, haven't read the Bible. Not making that up. Over half their population haven't read the Bible. And that, to me, is bonkers. But that's the reality we deal with every day. And that's the reality of the Orthodox Church. I'm not saying the Orthodox Church is bad, by the way. I'm not saying necessarily the Catholic Church is bad, although I have some very strong objections to what the Catholic Church has become. The Orthodox Church imposes certain strictures upon its adherents that, you know, actually sort of make sense and they stick to the true spirit of the word. 
but they also, some, for some reason, and I'm not entirely sure why, instill this mentality of fear and subservience into the people. I'll give you an example. In a, in a, um, in a regular church, a Protestant or Catholic church, the, the pews all allow you to sit down, right? You can sit and listen. You walk into a typical Russian Orthodox church, there's no sitting room. You can't sit anywhere. You have to stand and just listen. You have to stand and listen for an hour to the batushka, the, the priest, you know, batushka, batushka, yeah, batushka, uh, batushka giving his sermon. Um, it, it, it's not a comfortable experience. It's not easy. And especially if you're a bit old, which is what a lot of Orthodox Russians are, it, you know, it's not a pleasant experience to go to church. It's really not. But they go anyway because their faith motivates them to do so. The reason, the, the, the reason why so many Slavs have this kind of fear-driven mentality about sin and punishment is because their system is very much works-based. It's very much all about you do good things, you get good things. Well, that's not, no, that's not Christianity. That's blatantly not Christianity. Christianity is faith-based. Perhaps alone among the major religions, it is faith-based. Unlike Hinduism, unlike Islam, unlike modern Judaism, unlike Buddhism, unlike, well, pretty much anything, actually. This is what makes it so revolutionary. Faith in Christ alone is what brings salvation. Faith in Christ and nothing else. And that is radical. That is, that is crazy compared to what most people believe. It's that simple and it's that complicated. Now, the lesson that we learn from reading through the scriptures, particularly the gospel, particularly the gospel of John, on and around the time of Easter, is indeed a lesson of renewal. Because again, every time you read the scriptures, they speak to you. And they say something different every time. They tell you different things. They deliver to you different ideas, different emphases. It truly is a living word. These are living waters that you are imbibing. And you begin to understand just how relevant the scriptures are to you, even in this day and age. 2,000 years after the death of Christ and his resurrection, everything he said is still relevant to us today. The technology has changed, the nations have changed, the peoples have changed, the places have changed, everything's changed. And yet every single thing he said is still relevant to us today. You can't get more powerful than that. This, what Christ had to say in particular about the evil in men's hearts is especially relevant today. Take a look around you at the Banderistan War and what is coming. Take a look at how evil the world has become. When Christ was out there preaching his message, he was talking about the world to come. He was, and by the way, Christ was a hellfire and damnation preacher. Don't ever let anybody tell you that Christ was just all about being nice and being forgiving and being a communal loving hippie. I mean, there's nothing that gets me more pissed off than listening to some New Age so-called Christian 
saying that Christ was all about peace and love and forgiveness and God loves you just the way you are and he just wants you to be happy. Bullshit. He doesn't. God wants you to be happy, yes, but he wants you to follow a plan of his choosing. And you have the right to reject that plan, but if you do, the consequences are on your head. God wants you to be happy doing what God wants you to do. And God knows that if you do what he wants you to do, you will be happy. But the problem is that what God wants us to do is really, really hard. Believe me, I know. I've fought against what God wanted me to do all my life. I continue to fight against it now, and it's it's exhausting. It's yeah, you know, a big part of the problem is I have no idea what God wants me to do most of the time. I don't have a clue. So I have to go through this long, drawn-out process of trying to figure it out. And it's very difficult and very frustrating, wasting an enormous amount of time and energy. If I just knew what God wanted me to do, it would be easy. right? I wouldn't have to live any more of my life wondering what it is He needs me to do. But here's the thing. I can look at the Scriptures and renew myself in them. And find out what I need to do to figure it out. Every time I find myself doubting or I find myself depressed or I find myself just just frustrated with how much I've failed in my life. And believe me, I've failed a lot. I mean, you guys don't know failure until you look at the track of my life and you realize just how much I've failed. Go back and listen to you know, the first couple of episodes of this podcast from way back when. And you'll get a clue as to just how badly I've failed in my life, at least in the eyes of men. Every time I feel like I'm continuing to fail, I'm not getting anywhere, I'm not doing the right thing, I'm, you know, I'm failing in the eyes of my father, I'm failing in the eyes of my, my peers, I'm not living up to my own expectations, things aren't going my way, what am I going to do, how am I going to survive, how am I going to... You know, I just I go back to the Beatitudes and I look at what Matthew wrote about how Jesus addressed the people uh, at the, uh, on the mountainside. Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and it shall be provided to you. If you ask the Father with a sincere heart and an open mind, He will tell you what He needs you to do. Renew yourself in the Scriptures. Renew yourself and renew your faith. Because that's what the scriptures are there for. They are there to help you to understand what Christ was all about. Why he was such a pivotal figure. Why he is the most important figure in your life. Especially in this day and age, when evil rules the world so plainly, so clearly, we as Christians are painting targets on our foreheads, on our backs, on our chests, straight, you know, for the evil one to target. I gave a talk um, a while back, I'm not going to say when, I'm not going to say where, in which I discussed what it means to be resilient and how you can take a lot of lessons from a lot of different places and put them together. And because of my background, you know, I talked about MMA and boxing and all sorts of other very violent things. And I had images up on, you know, on a, on a slideshow. And on, unlike every other speaker who was there that day, 
I stuck to the time limit, which was 10 minutes. And I just got up in front of everybody and I talked like I'm talking to you. Same kind of style, same kind of pitch and intonation and everything like that. And I just said, here's what I've been through. Here's what I've taken inspiration from. I drew from a whole bunch of different inspirations and sources. Towards the end, I had pictures up of the people who have helped me along the way, who, whom I thank in my prayers and in my thoughts for what they've done for me. And there's this big picture, this cat, this uh, actually orthodox icon of Jesus on the taking up like half the half the slide. And I pointed to it and I said, that is my king in front of everybody. And there's like 50 odd people in that audience, maybe probably more than that. And I knew when I did it that I was taking a bit of a risk. I didn't know how big a risk I was taking. I, I had no clue. As a friend of mine pointed out to me later on, you think the servants of the evil one didn't notice when you said that in front of everybody? You think the devil wasn't watching? You just painted a target on your back. He knows he can't claim you now. You said it in public. He knows you can't. You're not one of his anymore. And what that means is that people like us will always be hunted. We will always be tracked down and singled out because we refuse to bend the knee to the prince of this world. People like us are going to be shunned, ridiculed, mocked, humiliated, persecuted for what we believe. That a man who is God died on the cross and rose from the dead. That's what we believe. That's what this day is all about. And the godless woke corporations for which so many of us work will not rest until we are destroyed. If you don't believe me, just look at what's happening at Disney right now. The devil mouse is going after its Christian employees and the Christian employees there, the majority of them, are too frightened and too cowed to do anything about it. The majority of them are just trying to go along to get along. And here's the problem. That's exactly what most of the disciples were doing the day that Jesus was arrested. They either renounced him or turned their backs on him or fled and hid. And they did it because they were afraid. They were terrified of what could happen to them. They were outcasts in their own society. The Jews who followed Jesus had turned their backs on their forefathers, their traditions, their belief systems, everything that held them in their society because they believed in the promise that Jesus held as the potential Messiah, as the future King of Israel. And instead of accepting the mantle of a king, Jesus humbled himself and walked as a pauper, as a just a, an ordinary carpenter 
throughout Galilee and throughout Judea and throughout Israel, he just, you know, humiliated himself. He wasn't a king, but he called himself the Son of God, effectively. And when he did that, he painted a target on his back for every single one of the authorities that wanted to look for him and abuse him and mistreat him because he directly challenged the authority of the world. When the disciples saw this and they saw that he was arrested and imprisoned and then that someone who called himself the son of man or the son of the father in heaven could bleed and could experience pain and suffering the way that an ordinary man could. They thought, no, he's just a man. We were deceived. We were lied to. We believed in the wrong thing. And now look at us. We're, we're adrift. We're, we're, we're cut off from our people. We don't know what's going to happen to us because they didn't understand what he was talking about when he said, the son of man, you know, in three days, this temple shall be destroyed and will be rebuilt. Very loosely quoting from the scriptures in Luke, um, Luke chapter eight, I think. Um, something like that. And they did, they, they lost their faith and they became 12 frightened, lost men wandering around, wondering what they were going to do. And then, three days after he died, Jesus rose from the dead, and they went to look for him at the tomb. The women went first, and, you know, you have to understand what proto-Christian society, what, what, what that society at the time, rabbinical Judaism, what that society of the time looked like. There's a reason why in Islam, the testimony of a woman is worth half that of a man. It comes from Judaism. It comes from post-Babylonian exile Judaism. It comes from Judaic law. Women's testimony was not considered reliable because women were considered inferior. And yet Jesus appeared first to the women to honor them, to to basically show men how important women are in our lives. And then he appeared to the disciples. And the one that always gets me is when he appeared to Thomas Didymus, Thomas the twin, Thomas the doubter. And he says in John chapter 20, verse 24 to 27, I'm pretty sure that's what it is, the, the verses. Um, yeah, I could easily be wrong. But John chapter 20, and, you know, verse, yeah, basically 24 to 29, really, where Thomas says, I will not believe until I have put my hands on the marks in his hands and the wound in his side. Until I have seen him with my own eyes, I will not believe. And Jesus says, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Or more emphatically, I'm putting another translation. 
stop doubting and believe. That to me is the single most powerful passage in all the scripture. And it, the disciples believed. They'd seen it for those, with their own eyes. And look at what they became. Those 12 men went out and died as lions for their faith. They died in the most horrible ways imaginable. They died preaching a risen God that the, the, the Gentiles at the time, the Greeks, as, as Paul said, the Greeks found the entire thing ridiculous. They were like, you know, your God died and he came back to life. Like, seriously, where's, where's the juice? Where's the, where's the, where's the good stuff? Where's the A material, man? Like, come on, you know, entertain us. Where's the interesting philosophy in all of this? They wanted something meaty. They wanted something interesting. They wanted something elaborate and scandalous and, 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 you know, they wanted a real story like they could tell, such as Athena bursting forth from the forehead of her father Zeus, or, uh, you know, the, 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 the creation of a demigod where Zeus came down to earth and had sex with a beautiful woman and she gave birth to this, this supercharged human being who laid waste to entire cities and banged every beautiful woman that he could find and had conquests to his name and monuments raised to his glory and the, the Greeks are looking at these 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 jumped up Jews and saying like seriously this is the best you got Acts 17 look it up that's fascinating and yet they came away with their faith renewed the apostles felt renewed because they had seen what others could not see and that is the example we should take away. Look around you at this broken world that we're surrounded by. Look at the Banderistan War. I mean, I'm sitting here, I just finished drinking a, a glass of something called Fas, K-V-A-S, S, sometimes. What is that? It's, um, it's a, it's a, uh, it's hard to describe, but basically it's made of fermented black Russian bread. Seriously. It's a specialty drink that you get. Uh, there's a, it turns out there's a Russian Eastern European type shop not too far away. Well, actually it is some distance away from where I live. Uh, but, uh, I like to go there every few weeks and just stock up on stuff that I miss from Russia, such as glass and pilmeni and smithana and, uh, all the other good stuff, which I love to eat. Uh, all the really tasty stuff and the prices are good too. So I went there recently and I, I found that they had kvass. I was like, oh man, this is excellent. Kvass is a, uh, it's a, again, like I said, fermented drink made from uh, crusts of black bread. And you stick it in a pot and you let it ferment and the liquid that comes out is mildly alcoholic, not very, very slightly alcoholic. And you drink it on a hot summer's day and it's extremely refreshing. And it's like, you know, it's got a very different taste of Coca-Cola because it's not sugary. It's not particularly, it, it is sweet, but it's not sweet in a sugary way, the way that Coca-Cola is, which is disgusting, at least to me. So I just finished drinking that and it reminds me of the cultures that are at war right now. Cultures to which I have, a, for which I have a great kinship, 
cultures in which I have a vested personal interest. I care deeply about the peoples who are fighting each other right now. I have interests on both sides. And I see that people that I care about are really suffering. And it's heartbreaking to watch because you think to yourself, you know, why would God permit this evil on earth? Why would God allow these horrors to be inflicted upon innocent people? Why would all this death and destruction follow? Surely a, a, a just and kind and loving God would not allow this. And this is, this is the part that a lot of Slavic people actually have an enormously hard time with. And this is something the Orthodox Church does not do a good job of teaching. The Catholic Church doesn't do a good job of teaching it either, by the way. Here's the key thing to understand. We are in this broken and dying world because of our sins. God allows us to sin of our own free will. If God wanted to, because God is a complete and perfect being, he has no need of imperfect, incomplete beings like us or like the angels. He has absolutely no need of them. But he has them because he desires companionship and he desires mercy forgiveness upon creation, upon all that he creates. He desires for his creation to have free will, to become their own individual identities. He desires for us to create as he himself created. He desires for us to be free, ultimately, but free to obey him. If God wanted to, as a perfect and complete being, he could think evil out of existence in an instant. He wouldn't even have to lift a finger, metaphorically, to do it. He could just utter a thought, form a thought, and it would be gone. But the price for eliminating all evil would be the elimination of free will. We would all become mindless zombies, slaves to the will of God. That's all we'd be. God doesn't want that. He wants us to be free to love him, free to choose his dictates for us of our own free will. And what we see in Ukraine, in Washington, D.C., in London, in Brussels, in any den of corruption and iniquity around us is an abject failure to listen to God an abject and total failure to heed his lessons. Where I live, I can look across from my apartment and my you know dwelling place and I can see, let's see, I've got, there's a, a homosexual couple down below in one apartment. There's another homosexual male couple across the, the way there are, there's a homosexual female couple up and across a little bit. There's a Muslim uh, family, black Muslim family on the other side. Um, these people are all going to hell. I'm sorry to say that, but that's the truth. They're all going to hell. And so are most of the people that I come across on a daily basis. 
They don't know it. They don't realize it. And they're doing it of their own free will. They can save themselves tomorrow. They can save themselves in an instant. They can do it now if they wanted to. But they won't. They choose to sin. We all choose to sin, by the way. I sin constantly. And uh, it's not a good thing. Trust me. It's, uh, don't do what I do. Just Seriously, just don't do what I do. And you'll be a lot better off for, for it in, in your life. But sin rules over all of us. It has us in its grasp. Through the scriptures, though, we have a way out. Because the scriptures themselves don't really fix us. They just point us in the right direction. The only thing that can fix us is the truth that the scriptures point to, that they embody, that they narrate. And that truth has a physical human expression. His name is Jesus Christ. Make Easter a time of renewal, because this really is the time to get back into the Bible. It really is the time to look again at the life of Christ and to understand just how amazing he was as a man, as a figure, as someone who gave us this amazing opportunity to love our fellow man, to love ourselves, to love God the Father. You know, it's, it's difficult for us to comprehend as human beings just how deep God's love is for us, how, um, how complete His forgiveness of our sins is, if only we embrace His will for us. We become essentially bondservants of God, slaves of God if you will. And this is something that a lot of people have trouble with, including putative Christians, supposedly nominal Christians. I've had this argument before with people that I know, again, from an Orthodox tradition, where they'll look at the scriptures and they'll say, I can't accept a God that will make slaves out of men. And I was like, well, that's not what it says. No, it does say that. It says you make slaves out of men. Yes, it says that. Look at the context of what that means. Look at what Paul was talking about. You were slaves of sin, but now you are slaves of God, slaves to righteousness, because your heart will desire righteousness. Your, your, every fiber of your being will seek righteousness because your whole way of thinking, your, your entire mental programming has been changed through the presence of the Holy Spirit in you. And the man who delivers or that, the, the being who delivers that Holy Spirit to you is Christ Jesus. He does it as you accept his kingship, as you give your life to him, the Holy Spirit enters you, cleanses you of all of this sin. Even though you're going to sin again, you won't want to do it. You'll, you'll feel disgusted by it. You'll feel repulsed by sin, by iniquity, by evil. You don't want to be that guy anymore. You can't justify it to yourself those sins. But from time to time, you need to rejuvenate yourself. You need to go back to that amazing feeling that you had when Jesus entered your life, truly entered it, and changed you from within. Make this Easter 
that time of renewal. Make every Easter that time of renewal. Go back to the Bible. Go back to the Word. Go back to the truth. Because once you do that, you won't really have to worry about whether I'm doing the right thing or am I doing the right thing. There's a sense of peace to be found in just reading the Word and hearing the Word and experiencing it. Putting yourself in those stories as someone who was there on the Temple Mount, listening to Jesus, not not on the Temple Mount, at the Sermon on the Mount, listening to Jesus preach. Being there in the temple when he chased the, the moneylenders out. Being there in the courtyard of Pilate. I have, I have been in that very complex, or standing outside it technically, in Jerusalem. I have walked the Via Dolorosa, the bit of it that's open to the public. I mean, look, I, I get it, right? Like, what we consider to be the Via Dolorosa, what we know of as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, what we think of as the very place that Jesus was crucified, these are places found by the Empress Helena, the mother of Constantine, and it was done 300 years after Jesus died. Whatever, right? I, I get it. Okay, I, I know these are representations, likely representations of the places where Jesus probably went in his final minutes. Hours, really. I get it. Good enough for me. It's a decent stand-in. I mean, if the Muslims can get away with claiming stuff that blatantly never actually happened is the foundation of their religion, then we can get away with saying, well, this is probably where everything happened, but at least we admit that there's some uncertainty. We don't, we're not dogmatic about it. Um, you know, I have walked the Via Dolorosa. I have touched the rock slab where Jesus was supposedly cleaned. I have seen the inside of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Put yourself in those stories. Let them become personal to you. Understand what they say and what they mean. I promise you, you'll come away with a sense of new, renewed faith, of renewed hope and optimism in a time when everything seems dark and terrible and uncertain and scary. God is on our side. We just have to let him do what he needs to do and get out of his way. And we don't do enough of that. The scriptures will help us do precisely that. And with that, I think it's time to wrap up. Many thanks, as always, to all of you who have tuned in, who have listened, who have uh, commented and, and subscribed. Uh, I really appreciate it. You guys, uh, you know, I do this for myself. I, I don't do this for anybody else. But I do genuinely enjoy the interactions that I have with my tiny little audience of, you know, 150 or odd people, however many it is. Which, by the way, is, is still pretty substantial compared to a lot of other um, smack talkers out there. But uh, very happy Easter, my friends. Christ is risen. Our King is risen. And make this, as I said, a time of renewal in your life. Go back to the Scriptures and go back to God. This has been Didactic Mind, episode 99, The Time of Renewal. And I am Didact, signing off.